This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Kia ora, g'day, and welcome. My name is Thomas, and I'm the bloke behind the History of Aotearoa New Zealand podcast. As you might imagine, we talk about the history of Aotearoa New Zealand chronologically, like many other history podcasts you are likely familiar with, including Pax Britannica. Sam has kindly invited me to talk to you about something related to the British Empire, and since Aotearoa's history for the last 250 years has been intertwined with the Empire, there is naturally a lot to choose from. Before we get into it though, we better address a couple of things. Firstly, where is New Zealand? We are commonly left off of maps, so I won't hold it against you if you aren't sure where we are. We are the largest series of islands in the Southern Pacific Ocean, if you don't include Australia, who we are just east of across the Tasman Sea. The next thing you're probably wondering is why I'm saying Aotearoa. Aotearoa is the name of New Zealand given to the land by Māori, who are the indigenous inhabitants of New Zealand, sometimes called Tangata Whenua, people of the land. In the case of Aotearoa, it literally translates into Land of the Long White Cloud. We will be using a lot of Te Reo Māori, the Māori language, throughout the episode, but I'll explain each term as we go so you don't get lost. Finally, we're going to be talking a lot about Māori culture, and it is only fair that I state that I am Pākehā, a Kiwi of non-Māori descent, specifically European. With that out of the way, let's get into the meat of it. We are going to be talking about Barnett Burns, a man who came to Aotearoa in the early 19th century and had a series of wild adventures. So buckle up, the land that time forgot awaits. Barnett Burns was born in around 1805, potentially in Liverpool. We don't really know what he was doing for his early years up until the age of around 13 or 14, which is where he joined the crew of a trading ship and took to the seas. He spent some time doing that in and around Jamaica specifically, until the ship returned to England and he was put into a Lancasterian school in London, 
which is basically a school practicing a specific method of education that we don't really care too much about. Again, we lose sight of him for a bit, presumably because all he was doing was getting the cane across his knuckles. But in 1827, when he was probably about 20 years old, he pops back up again sailing on the Wilna to Rio de Janeiro in modern Brazil. This is probably a good time to explain that most of the information going forward is from Burns' own book, which starts with the Wilna. He actually wrote about his time here in New Zealand, and it's pretty much the only source we have on him while he was here. So naturally, we need to take a lot of it with a grain of salt, as it can't really be corroborated with any other sources or evidence. It's all we got though, so let's press on. It's not clear how long the Wilner intended to stay in Rio, but Burns says there was a dispute between the captain and crew. What this was though, Burns doesn't remember, saying it was, quote, something of very little consequence, end quote. The end result was certainly more consequential, as the entire crew was released of service, including Burns himself. Thankfully for him though, Burns must have stayed somewhat out of the dispute and perhaps even distinguished himself at sea, as he received a recommendation of good character from the captain, who also even put in a good word for him with another merchant. So clearly, Burns had impressed the captain enough for him to go out of his way to help him. This merchant then eventually led Burns to becoming the steward on the Nimrod, which was bound for Sydney, Australia. It's interesting to note that in Burns' book, Sydney is spelt S-I-D. N-E-Y, for some reason. Once in Sydney, Burns must have been pretty sick of the seaman's life, as he told the captain he wanted to remain in town for a bit. As such, he was discharged from service once again, and given a recommendation of a merchant he should go see about getting work in town. Like back in Rio, this merchant didn't give him a job, but it did lead him to getting employment at the Bank of Australia. These sorts of repetitions appear a few times in Burns' book, especially in regards to numbers of people, which leads me to wonder how accurate his recount is. He was writing this book potentially a few years later, with the first copy appearing in 1835, so perhaps he just forgot or misremembered until some of the events blended together, rather than it being a malicious attempt to distort the truth. Again, Without any other sources to compare, it's hard to tell, and we more or less have to take him at his word. Anyway, at the bank, he was... Uh... Actually, he doesn't say what he was doing, which is kind of annoying. What we do know is that he stayed there for two years before being, quote, persuaded by some old shipmates, end quote, to join them on a trip to the nearby land of New Zealand. Burns must have thought quite highly of his employer at the bank, a man by the name of W.H. McKenzie Esquire, as Burns calls him. Because he writes that when McKenzie was told that Burns wanted to resign to go back to a life at sea and onto New Zealand, McKenzie, quote, behaved to me not only as a master, but acted in every way as my friend, end quote. What that meant in reality, Burns doesn't say, but this relationship obviously didn't sour over time, as Mackenzie and Burns would cross paths again. For now though, Burns jumped on the merchant ship Elizabeth and sailed for Aotearoa across the Tasman Sea to trade for Harakeke, New Zealand flax. 
Flax, of the New Zealand variety, was an important material for Europeans in the area around this time, and was of course even more important for Māori ever since their arrival in the mid-13th century. Both cultures used it for clothes and rope, the latter being of greater interest to Europeans in their sailing ships, among a variety of other things. The problem was that it was difficult to obtain harakeke in a form that allowed it to be weaved into useful items. It was a long and quite involved process that Māori had become very good at, and of course, in the natural European fashion, they tried to replicate and shortcut this process for mass production. They would eventually somewhat succeed in this, but that was in 30 years' time. For now, the only way to get good muka, the end product of flax that could be woven, was to trade with Māori, which naturally came with its own challenges. Burns, for his part, seems to have thrived in this environment during the eight months he stayed. He even overcame one of the major hurdles in trading with Māori, the language barrier, as he, quote, had an opportunity of acquiring the New Zealand language as fluently nearly as my own, end quote. Burns doesn't go into too much detail on this period of his life, other than the fact that he gained a huge love for Aotearoa. So much so, in fact, that as soon as he returned to Sydney, now spelt correctly, by the way, he would, quote, procure a berth, if possible, as trading master for any merchant from whom I could get employment, either to return or settle ashore, and trade on any of the islands or stop on board of a ship, end quote. So basically, his options were to either just go on a brief trading stint, like he had just done, but his preferred option was to settle down, set up a trading station, and live in New Zealand, probably somewhat indefinitely. Clearly, for whatever reason, he really fell in love with this land, something that you can see come up a few times in his book. Getting the trading station he wanted, though, wasn't a small ask. He would have to be trusted by his employer to act on his own independently, trading with Māori and keeping good relations with them without seeing anyone under his boss's employ, or perhaps even seeing another Englishman or European for months. To get what he desired, Burns went back to his friend and former boss, Mackenzie, which was previously spelt with an S, but is now spelt with a Z. Mackenzie gave Burns a name, Montefor, who was a merchant looking to establish some trading stations in New Zealand for Harakeke Flax. And of course, he needed some people to run those stations. There was a catch, though. Montefort didn't want just any Joe convict off the Sydney streets to do this delicate work, which required charisma, diplomacy, business sense, and the ability to keep calm under the pressure of death when any possible help was thousands of miles and months away. Burns had already likely proven he had all these skills, working on various merchant vessels, ingratiating himself with the captains, and working in a bank. However, the most important thing Montefort was looking for was people who spoke te reo, the Māori language. And as we have already talked about, Burns just so happened to have spent eight months in country learning that very language. As such, he managed to get a berth on Montefort's ship as a trading master, once again bound for Aotearoa. Burns arrived in New Zealand in February of 1831 at the age of about 26. 
He was to be the sole trader for his employer in Mahia, a little outcropping of land at the northern end of Hawke's Bay on the North Island's east coast. His contract stated all the usual things around conflicts of interest and notice of resignation, along with that he should forward the interests of his employer by, quote, affecting a permanent and friendly intercourse with the natives, end quote. As you are likely aware, Europeans did not hold Māori, or any indigenous people for that matter, in high regard during this time, given the language used when discussing them. Burns was to be paid £4 a month, which is probably around six to $700 in 2019 Kiwi money. He would also be paid a £5 commission on all flax valued at £12 per tonne, so probably a few thousand in today money. Given that the ship had sailed from Australia, which is west of New Zealand, the ship needed to go through Cook Strait between the North and South Islands to get to the East Coast where Burns would be left. Along the way, they dropped off other trading masters and built their houses for them, even trading with Māori a little bit too, and perhaps even witnessed to some violent conflict. This may have been in quote-unquote Taranakia, which is likely modern-day Taranaki, where he was told by local European settlers that they were on good terms with local iwi, tribes, but that neighbouring iwi had been posturing and that they expected to come to blows soon. This was something that was not uncommon during the time, and even before Europeans arrived after Captain Cook's rediscovery of the islands about 60 years prior. Although it took them two weeks to cross the Tasman, Burns only reached Mahia after four months of travel from leaving Sydney, which, by the way, was now consistently spelt correctly. Burns actually describes how he felt upon his arrival, which I think really illustrates what we have already discussed. Quote, I arrived at my destination, Mahia, where I landed without a house being ready, a complete stranger, not a white man to be seen, not one residing within a hundred miles of me, end quote. For all his experience and adventure so far, the mid-twenties Barnett Burns was probably the most scared he had ever been in his life. This was made worse as the ship that brought him only stayed a couple of days and didn't even bother building him a house like it had for the other trading masters. Again, why this happened, he doesn't mention. Instead, he had to take his trading goods to land via waka, canoe, and leave them in the local rangatira's house. Rangatira being tareo for chief or noble. It's at this point that Burns adds some more to his earlier thought of loneliness. Quote, So here I was, amongst a set of cannibals, trust wholly and solely to their mercy, not knowing the moment when they might take my trade from me, and not only my trade, but my life. The chief, whom I had particularly selected to trade with, left me, so I had the whole charge on my own hands. I was obliged to carry my musket and constantly sleep with it by my side, in fact, I had to keep watch all the time. Then, for the first time since I took my fancy to visit New Zealand, I felt frightened at my situation. I knew I was not sure of my life an hour. End quote. In short, Burns was in an unfamiliar land with unfamiliar people and constantly feared for his life. Māori at this time had the power. They controlled trade and had the military strength to back it up. 
If the Rangatira chief wanted Burns dead, it would likely be done. Thankfully for Burns though, he managed to gain the trust and protection of the Rangatira chief called Awahi, who belonged to the Natikahununu tribe. After Burns was settled in, Awahi left to get flax to trade him for the goods he brought. Stuff like blankets, tobacco, iron tools, wool, leather, oil, and rum. Burns brought three more trade goods with him that were likely the thing that Awahi was most interested in though. Muskets and the shot and gunpowder to use them. To give you a brief summary of why he likely would have wanted those most, during this period, the musket wars were raging. These were a series of intertribal conflicts sparked by the arms race instigated by European trading of gunpowder weapons to Māori. Iwi tribes who possessed muskets had an inherent advantage over those that didn't, who would have had weapons that had been used in Aotearoa for centuries. Weapons like taiaha, patu and tafatifa, spears, clubs and a type of axe thingy, which were all close-range weapons in the style of warfare Māori were used to. So long-range muskets gave a significant advantage, or at least brought you up to par with your enemies. Anyway, back to Burns, whose trading of these items to Awahi and Natikahununu apparently pleased all of them greatly, getting him off to a good start in establishing that quote-unquote friendly intercourse. It soon led to some intercourse of the other variety, as Burns married Awahi's daughter, Amutawa, eventually having three children with her, throughout his time in Aotearoa. This state of affairs, of Burns trading various goods to the locals for flax, continued for 11 months, not hearing anything from Montefiore until a ship was sent to collect his flax. Montefiore had sent a man by the name of Mr. Sims, with a letter that read, quote, Mr. Burns, sir, I've authorised Mr. Sims to make such arrangements with you relative to your stay, removal, or otherwise at New Zealand, as he may deem most proper. I am, sir, your most obedient servant, L. Baron Montefiore, end quote. So Sims was to assess Burns's progress and decide if he should remain employed. Clearly, Sims was not impressed with what he saw, as he elected to shut down the station. Burns gave up his flax without pay, and he was pretty pissed about it as were the local iwi tribe, at the realisation that the flow of various European goods would cease. And really to say that is quite the understatement. According to Burns, the tribe was so fucked off that they were ready to fight the ship's crew to get the flax back, along with anything else they had. In fact, one person had tried to steal a cask of gunpowder from the ship, but was caught and severely punished by his peers, quote, according to their laws and habits, end quote. At some point, Burns's wife was held captive on the ship, perhaps due to these tensions. And remember, she was the Rangatira chief's daughter, so it was within the iwi's interest not to be brazen. Eventually, all parties agreed that Burns would be paid in trade goods for his confiscated flax, and that his wife would be released. It was at this point that Burns had a choice to make. Since he was relieved of service, he could choose to get on the ship and returned to Sydney to look for more work, which Mr. Sims was bound by his employer to facilitate. Or he could remain in New Zealand with the people he had developed bonds with, but with no guarantee of any pay. Once again, 
Burns himself quite nicely captures his feelings in his book. Quote, Words cannot express in what state my feelings were. Suffice to say, it would have been better if I had been dead. The ship which contained all my friends and countrymen, leaving me at one side, and on the other, my wife, who would not quit her native country. And as she was on the point of lying in, I could not bring myself to leave the country with the ship. End quote. Burns was clearly torn between those he saw as going back to the familiar and staying in the strange land he had grown to love with his wife. Though, whether this was because he cared deeply for her, or out of obligation, it isn't clear. Whatever the case may be, all Burns could do was watch as the ship sailed out of Hawke's Bay, and he was left at the edge of the world. A European, in a Māori society, with an uncertain future. Sometime after this incident, most of the tribe left their village to tend their potato and kumara fields, or sweet potato, that were some distance away. This left the village, called a pa due to its walled fortifications, rather defenceless, with minimal people inside it. During this time, Burns learned that a neighbouring iwi tribe, Ngāti Te Whatuiapiti, were looking to attack the pa and take his trade goods, which Burns stated he would die in the effort to defend them, due to the effort that it took to get them off Mr. Sims. However, his father-in-law, the Rangatera chief, advised against it, as there was no hope they could defend well enough, with most of their fighting people away, and too far to return in time. Instead, he said they should take a wakatoa, a war canoe, load it with his stuff, and head for Poverty Bay, the next major bay in the north. There, they would be protected by Awahi's allies. Burns agreed, loading the waka canoe with his goods, Amotawa, their child, Awahi, himself of course, and some slaves to do the actual paddling. This left those who had not gone into the fields behind, mostly women and children. The women grieved as they left, cutting themselves with quote-unquote lava, which I can only guess means obsidian. They had some difficulty getting to their destination, with the waka canoe and all the goods having to be carried over land at one point for 21 kilometres or 13 miles. Despite this arduous journey, they made it safely to Poverty Bay and Awahi's allies, Te Aetangi Amahaki Iwi. They were very helpful to Burns, saying they would help him trade, supply him with food, and protect him. To this end, the local rangatera chief advised Burns to travel another 19 kilometres, or 12 miles inland, to where there were a series of strong pa fortifications. He had only been in Poverty Bay for 24 hours, before he set out again towards these fortified villages, who also warmly received him. Burns says at this point he didn't really have much to do, perhaps as he needed to lay low for a bit. As such, he decided to have a bit of a holiday and take in the sights, saying the area was, quote, the finest and most beautiful of all the island, end quote, and that he'd found all sorts of animals and plants in abundance. However, these were mostly European ones, rather than the unique flora and fauna of Aotearoa. I can only assume this was because Burns wouldn't be able to identify our podocarps, weta, or any of our wide range of endemic birds, as opposed to the European ones that he was likely familiar with. It was about three weeks after his escape from Mahia 
that Burns heard of another European in the area. He wanted to go meet him for trade, and likely just to see someone who was of similar culture, but he was unable to. News came that a 600 strong army was heading towards them, looking to rumble. Burns doesn't elaborate on why they were looking for a fight, only that he was requested by his chief to join the battle. Whether this chief was Awahi, or whoever was in command of the Pa fortifications, Burns doesn't say, just that it was quote-unquote his chief. This was to be Burns' first battle, but not his last, and he didn't need much encouragement to join despite any apprehension, saying that it was better to just dive in rather than hesitate. Given that Burns had a number of muskets, shot, and powder for trade, he was able to help arm those setting out for battle, potentially giving them a significant advantage, as we mentioned earlier. The army was 700 strong when they left the Pa fortifications looking for their enemies. They travelled 32 kilometres, or 20 miles, to where they thought the opposition army was, a large amount of smoke lifting into the air, almost confirming where their camp was. The plan was to catch them by surprise and ambush them. However, this was foiled when one of their kuri, dogs, accidentally walked into the enemy camp during the night. They grabbed it, tied a cord to it, and used it as a lead to have the dog take them back to the camp of Team Burns. Instead of attacking though, they used this chance to run, possibly deeming the fight not worth it, potentially due to superior numbers or firepower. Team Burns only discovered their escape the next morning, and quickly got to pursuing them. They were long gone by that point though, and they were only able to capture some food carried by four slaves. As was typical at the time, the slaves were executed and eaten. Burns also describes his allies performing a quote-unquote war dance, that they performed before and after a battle to show their joy in victory. The war dance is something that you may be familiar with, as you have likely seen the All Blacks do one before every rugby game, a haka. There are many different types of haka, so the one Burns would have seen wouldn't be THE haka, as you know it, as that one would have been written around this time, if not a little later. With their enemies driven off, Team Burns returned home. Things were quiet for a time after that, until Burns went on a flax-buying trip with some of his new mates. Along the way, they were attacked by a war party, belonging to the Ngāti Te Rangi Iwi. Burns says his party, quote, fought to a man, end quote, but that they were overwhelmed and defeated, with everyone being killed and eaten. Except, Burns. The Ngāti Te Rangi party thought they could get a good ransom for him from his chief, given he was a trader and a source of valuable European goods. They took him into the bush to where the rest of the tribe was, Burns saying that, quote, they had no houses belonging to them, end quote. So they were a somewhat nomadic group, something that was likely unusual at this time. Slavery in Māori society wasn't unusual, as you might have figured out by now, but it was a lot different to chattel slavery, that of the African slave trade. Slaves, or taurekareka, were given a lot more freedom than their African counterparts. Some slaves even rose to great wealth if they showed aptitude in certain arts or skills. What Burns says, though, is that he got quote-unquote friendly 
with a high-ranking woman. A very high-ranking woman, as her father was the Ariki, the High Chief. Essentially, someone who has multiple Rangatira chiefs who are loyal to him. A very powerful man indeed, whose tapu, spiritual sacredness, extended to his daughter, who could stop someone from being harmed by transferring that tapu via laying her kakahu, cloak, on them. According to the woman, the Ariki High Chief wanted to be his friend and give him land. Although Burns doesn't actually say, I assume this was to try and get Burns to stay and trade for them, so that they could get access to the goods he could provide. She also says that due to the favour her father wanted to give him, there were others who were jealous and would likely kill him at the first opportunity. She tells Burns to stick close to her and her father to avoid execution. Certainly a good idea, given that almost unlimited protection was within their power to give, but also potentially a manipulation tactic to a captive. During his time as a slave, Burns was treated pretty poorly. He was taunted, spat on, and told, quote, they would eat my very heart the first opportunity they had, end quote. Within a few days, Burns had had enough, and naturally wanted to escape. Despite his poor treatment, though, he kept his mouth shut from complaining, as he thought this would result in those men being executed for doing something they really shouldn't. This wasn't meant to be altruistic, though. Their execution would eventually lead back to him complaining, and result in worse treatment for him, something that had happened to other Europeans in similar situations. Instead, he just watched and waited for his chance to get away. It never came, so he changed tack and tried to gain their trust and be mates with them. Surprisingly, or at least it was surprising to me, it worked. This led to some of the Rangatera chiefs wanting Burns to be tattooed as a show of loyalty, that he would, quote, bring them trade, fight for them, and in every way make myself their friend, end quote. This was a huge step in trust, as Tāmoko, tattoo, was not undertaken lightly, due to how expensive it was, the time it took, and the physical stamina needed. Burns would have likely seen the procedure of Moko take place at this point, one that was so painful, often only a few centimetres could be done before they had to stop. As you might expect, Burns told the Ariki High Chief that he wasn't that keen, although there were other reasons too. Burns actually just straight up told the High Chief that he didn't really like them, and didn't have any intention of joining them fully. I can only assume from then on that Burns had difficulty walking due to his giant brass balls. This apparently made the chief cry due to the high regard he held Burns in. Although, if this did happen, and I kinda doubt it did, it would have likely been due to the loss of potential trade. In any case, the Ariki High Chief was not able to force Burns to undergo the procedure, but he did warn that if he didn't, it would likely result in someone killing him despite being protected. The Ariki High Chief was absolutely right, as one day when Burns was out hunting birds, he was accosted by a small group of his captors. Burns says they intended to kill him, and that he quote, cocked my piece and told them to fire if they were inclined to kill me, end quote. I don't know about you, but I can hear the brass clanging from here. 
His willingness to stand his ground must have impressed the group, as they told Burns they wouldn't kill him if he fought for them, which would also mean he would have to get tattooed. Seeing no way out, Burns agreed. The group thought that this was pretty great, and cheered, carrying Burns home on their backs. Burns's later remarks on this was that he did this more out of survival than any desire to actually be tattooed or join them, hoping to be found by his allies soon. We mentioned it briefly before, but the process of getting moko, tattoos, was long, gruelling, and in Burns's own words, quote, horribly painful, end quote. So after a week of having bone chisels tapped into him, not once, but twice for every line, Burns was only a quarter done. We aren't sure which part of his body was tattooed, but we do know that his upper body was somewhat tattooed already, in a style typical for English sailors, so it was potentially his face that was done. We also know that he got his whole face done after these events, so I'll have a picture in the show notes to let you see what he looked like. Thankfully for Burns, there was a storm on the seventh day, and he managed to use it to escape. He knew that they hadn't travelled far from where his wife, child, and the rest of the Iwi tribe were living, so that was at least some comfort. The journey was still gruelling though, as he was in dense bush with no shoes, and anyone who has been out in the New Zealand bush will know that this is not just less than ideal, but potentially dangerous. He also had to avoid patrols of his former captors, who were sent out to find him when they discovered he was missing. All this meant it took him three days to get back to his tribe, but he did make it, and they were very glad to see him, with many muskets being fired in excitement. The women also cut themselves, just like they had when he had left Mahia, as they used it to express extreme joy as well as grief, which made Burns uncomfortable, as you might imagine. Naturally, his friends were pretty interested to know where he had been all this time, although he doesn't say it's probably fair to guess that he was gone between a few weeks to maybe even a couple of months. They also wanted to know what happened to the rest of the group he was with, who were now obviously not with him, and the fact that he had no flax, as he had left with a large amount of it. This was to make no mention of the fact that he was now partially tattooed, which would have aroused a lot of interest. Burns told them his story, and they immediately swore to get utu, recompensation, in this case, Revenge. Sixty men were immediately picked out to be part of a towa, a war party. They were armed with muskets before setting out to find Burns's captors and bring back their heads. Literally. Burns himself said that he would have gone, but he felt unwell, so instead retired to his own house. Naitarangi, his captors, figured out pretty quickly that they weren't going to find him, and that when he did reach the rest of Team Burns, they would come after them. So they quickly got out of there, only leaving behind four pigs, which the pursuing party found and brought back. Although they hadn't exacted a violent revenge on their enemies, Team Burns was still pretty chuffed with having driven their enemies off and gotten a feed in the process. After Burns recovered, he went back to his day job, trading Harakeke flax. On one particular trip up the Tūranganui River in modern Gisborne, he could hear the sounds of a battle outside the village. He asked some of the locals about it, asking them what was going on and who was attacking them. He learned 
that it was Te Whakatohia Iwi, who had been stirring up trouble in the area for some time. Not wanting to get caught in the crossfire, Burns headed back down river and back home. Not long after this, word went out from the tribe he had been visiting that they intended to storm the pa fortifications of Te Whakatohia and drive them from the region for good. They couldn't do this alone, however, and were asking for assistance from Team Burns as well as other local iwi tribes. The Rangatira chief agreed, and an army of 600 was gathered together in preparation, with Burns himself specifically being asked to not just join the army, but lead a contingent of 150 soldiers. A sign of not only their trust and respect, but his mana. A word meaning things like prestige, gravitas, influence, or spiritual aura that you might find around someone important, like a leader of a nation. The army set out, linking up with the others along the way to the par fortifications, which Burns says were very strong, although not big, probably only 400 metres or a quarter mile in diameter. By the time Team Burns and co reached the par fortifications, everyone had been rushed inside for protection, just like a medieval castle. Overall, it had taken them three weeks to reach the par fortifications and surround them, only seeing some minor skirmishes during that time. They were easily won, and those captured or shot were eaten. It was at this point that Team Burns and the rest of the army settled in for a siege. Over the course of the siege, people would sometimes leave the par fortifications to try and forage for food, but more often than not, they were captured and usually eaten, as was the case with one of the Ariki High Chief's wives who tried to escape the par fortifications by swimming across the river. Burns goes into quite grisly detail on how the chiefs laid claim to various parts of her body to eat, discussing in front of her, while she was still alive. I'll save you the rather disconcerting discussion he writes, which is about a page long, other than that they were cooked in a hangi, which was essentially a pit in the ground with volcanic rocks at the bottom. You put in the food and cover it up with dirt to cook. It may not sound appealing, but it's actually pretty tasty. The hangi food, I mean, not not people. Although, they did say it tastes like pork. It is possible that Burns was playing up the gory details for effect, something you could argue for a number of other details in the book. But his description seems to be roughly in line with other sources I've read on the subject. Anyway, although there was a siege going on, there was still some trade between the besiegers and the besieged. Things like flax for gunpowder and food for what Burns calls mats, but by the way he describes them, he actually means a kakahu cloak. Although this may seem counterintuitive, after all, they were giving the enemy items that they probably needed, it of course let Burns' side also get items they needed, but also allowed them to get closer to the par fortifications, and perhaps even inside them, to scope out the weaknesses a little, and determine how they would storm them. In the end though, Team Burns just decided to rush the par fortifications that they were sieging. They would cut the vines, holding the gates closed, or holding the walls together, to get inside and smash the enemy once there. As you'll be used to me saying by now, Burns doesn't go into any detail of the battle itself, apart from the fact that the plan worked and the par fortifications 400 occupants were captured, presumably minus those who were killed in any fighting, though Burns doesn't mention that either. 
The prisoners were shared around as war booty, with about 60 of them being killed and eaten in celebration. After their victory, Team Burns headed home, the various Iwi tribes splitting off to go back to their respective Pa fortifications and Kaina villages. Things settled back down into their usual routine for the next three weeks. That is, until a ship called the Prince of Denmark arrived. She had arrived from Sydney to trade, and after some negotiation with Burns, he managed to get employed by the captain for £3 a month with no extra commission on large amounts of flax. A bit of a raw deal compared to his previous employer, but likely a much more steady income than what he had been doing since his last employer had given him the sack, which actually wouldn't have been that long ago. The timelines from various sources seem to be a bit varied, but in general it seems that the prince arrived in 1832, only a year after he had arrived as a trademaster for Montefiore. The catch was that he had to relocate again, another 48 kilometres or 30 miles north along the coast to Tolaga Bay at the mouth of the Uwawa River. Thankfully though, his wife's brother lived there, so they wouldn't be surrounded by those who were totally unfamiliar. So once again, Burns packed up himself, his wife, their child, or potentially two children at this stage, and a few others to head off up north. As a side note, this is the first instance in his book that he mentions any children he may have had. When they got there, Burns says there was essentially two villages, one on each side of the river. He says that they were of one iwi tribe, but that they were commanded by two brothers, each controlling one side of the awa, river. In this situation, there was also one European already trading from one of the Kaina villages, so Burns took the other side of the awa river, apparently never crossing over for trade. Burns says he stayed here for three years, and I presume not a lot really happened during that time, as he only mentions a couple of stories during this period. So in general, it seemed a whole lot less exciting than his first year in Aotearoa. Especially given one of the first things he mentions is that he sent 107 tonnes of flax back to Sydney for trade. Over these three years, the prince returned to Burns three times, and each time it came, it always brought news of how shitty things were back in Europe with the growing industrial revolution. This only firmed up any desire Burns had to remain in New Zealand, leading him to do everything in his power to get on good terms with the Iwi tribe who was now looking after him. Part of this was undergoing the rest of his moko, tattoos, given that if he was to stay here for the rest of his life, it would make sense to blend in and assimilate with the local culture. There were some more selfish reasons though. The first was that since his time as a slave of Naitarangi, he had been walking around with only a quarter of a moko, which would have looked a bit weird, like if your hairdresser just stopped cutting your hair halfway through. So it would be a good idea to get all of that balanced out. The other bonus was that if he looked more Māori, he would have a natural advantage in diplomacy and trade, partly due to the fact that those he interacted with would be able to tell he was a man of mana and respect. But also, because people just tend to like and trust those that look more like them. Burns says he underwent this procedure of his own free will this time, and in fact, he was happy to do so, seemingly glad to go through this almost rite of passage and be considered one of them. Quote, This was the place where I enjoyed happiness. This was the place where I was tattooed. 
I could travel to any part of the country amongst my friends if I thought proper, end quote. Burns adds that this feeling of friendship was mutual among the other chiefs, who he says considered him like a brother, even to the point where Burns was also considered a rangatira chief in his own right, commanding a village of 600 people and was able to purchase flax when others couldn't due to his station. It was really at this point that Barnett Burns fully became what would be known as a Pakeha Māori, those Europeans that lived their lives among Māori and according to tikanga, customs and spiritual practices in the practical world. It was at this point that he would potentially have the opportunity to have multiple wives due to his rank as a rangatira chief. What we find though is that Burns stayed with Amotawa as his only wife. It seems that Burns had really found his true place, considering these to be the happiest years of his life. Towards the end of this period, Burns heard of three Europeans nearby who had escaped from a whaling ship when it had stopped for provisions. To us today, this probably isn't that surprising, as a sailor's life during this time was harsh, no matter what the profession of the vessel. But the captain must have thought it had something to do with local Māori, as he retaliated by capturing 15 people. This naturally angered their whānau, family, and the wider tribe, who at this point had somehow captured the three escaped whalers and were preparing to kill them for their transgression. Upon hearing this, Burns had the people under his command, along with some from allied chiefs, prepare a wakatoa, war canoe, arm themselves, and prepare for battle which they eagerly did. The 60-strong group headed up the coast, taking three days to get to their destination, at which point they brought the waka canoe to land and covered it in leaves. All of this would indicate that they were probably not expecting a warm reception from the local iwi tribe, but Team Burns was welcomed into the par fortifications in what was probably a porphyry, a Māori ceremony of welcome. Although Burns says they were on good terms with the local iwi tribe, Citing the porphyry to illustrate this, it was possible this ceremony proceeded despite them being bitter rivals, as one of the main purposes of porphyry was to indicate non-hostile intent, among other things. After some kai, food, Burns asked the rangatira chief if he did actually have the three whalers. The chief spoke in whaikorero, a formal speech, using allegory, emphasis, and everything else you would expect, which was not unusual for this kind of event. Essentially what he said was that he did have them, and that Burns was not allowed to see them, as he intended to keep them as utu, recompensation, for his own people that had been captured. Burns tried to negotiate with him, telling the rangatira chief that he could not blame the three men, that they were only lowly sailors, and that the captain was the one to blame, and as such, only he should face punishment. The chief was having none of it though, and signalled to Burns that he didn't want to discuss the matter further. Likely frustrated, Burns left the whare, house, and walked around the par fortifications until dark, probably mulling over what to do. He eventually found a child, and asked him whether he knew where the Europeans were being held. Since the child didn't realise that Burns was himself a European, given he had elaborate moko tattoos on his face, he pointed towards another house across the par fortifications. Burns ran to it and burst through the door, finding the three men nearly naked and very afraid. Asking them questions, Burns found out that they had been there for six days, and were being told that they were going to be executed every day. 
probably something Burns sympathised with from his time with Naitarangi as a slave. The men begged Burns to save them, to which he said he would try to pay a ransom. He went back to the Rangatera chief and offered a musket, a barrel of powder, and a kākahu cloak for the three men as payment. This would have been a pretty nice sum, as the musket and powder were of immense practical use, whereas the cloak also had the extra effect of adding mana prestige to the chief, depending on its quality. The only caveat to this was that Burns clearly didn't have any of those on him right now, so he would need to head back to Team Burns HQ in Tolaga Bay to get them. So Burns needed a promise that the men wouldn't be killed until he returned with the ransom. The chief's reply to this was to basically ask Burns if he was bullshitting him, but Burns was steadfast, saying that he wasn't and that he was perfectly willing to pay the price for the whalers. The chief went away and consulted with his peers, eventually agreeing, but on one condition. Since he didn't know if Burns would return at all once he left, he said he would go with Burns to get the ransom, bringing the three men with him. This would ensure Burns kept his word, and if he didn't, he could execute the whalers right then and there. Burns agreed, so off they went. Most of the journey was uneventful, until they got close to the Uwawa River. The chief's waka canoe capsized on a sandbar, spilling everything into the water. According to Burns, since they were wrecked, all of their property, and even the people themselves, were up for grabs due to Māori custom. As such, everything was confiscated from the chief. His possessions, his people, and most importantly for Burns, the three whalers. Burns says that this would ordinarily lead to war between the parties involved in any other circumstance. But since Burns was only really interested in the whalers, he used his now superior bargaining position to negotiate with the chief. Well, I say negotiate. He told the chief he could have everything and everyone back if he let Burns keep the three Europeans. Considering this was probably the best deal in the history of trade deals maybe ever, the Rangatera chief agreed. And I don't just say that to be funny, either, because it was the best deal for both sides. It's obvious why it was good for the Rangatera chief. He got all of his people and his stuff back, and only had to give away three overall meaningless Europeans. But for Burns, he got to avoid a war that he was very prepared to, and expecting, to undertake. Why? Because the musket, barrel of powder, and the kākahu cloak he promised to pay didn't actually exist. He didn't have them. He was bullshitting. So points to the Rangatera chief for having a good nose for it. With the men free, they hung around Tolaga Bay for a bit until a ship came by and took them back to Sydney. What you're probably wondering is why Burns went to all this trouble for three people he didn't know, or at least we aren't sure if he knew them. Was it some sort of kinship and obligation he felt to his fellow Europeans, or was he just a paragon of virtue and justice? We will likely never know, along with the fates of the 15 Māori that were captured, which Burns also doesn't mention. Burns stayed a further six months in New Zealand after these events, until a ship called the Bardister of Liverpool arrived in October of 1834. As he would probably often do at the sight of a European vessel, he launched his waka canoe to investigate why it was there and whether it was hostile. When he boarded, 
Burns somewhat surprisingly found an agent of his employer who asked him how much flax he had for him. When Burns told him, the agent said he would need to wait for the next ship to offload, but Burns had other ideas. He told the agent that he wished to go to Sydney over a matter that he wanted to speak directly to his employer about, potentially involving land. The agent said he would have to pay £5 for passage. A pretty hefty sum if you remember that Burns was only paid £3 a month, which was worse than his first employer. Despite this, Burns accepted and headed back to the Kainar village, agreeing to meet the ship at Poverty Bay. Once again, Team Burns, again consisting of his wife, Amotawa, his children, his father-in-law, the Rangatira chief Awahi, some other family members, and his flax, paddled back to the area of modern-day Gisborne. Burns says it was a hard trip, probably not too dissimilar to their first journey escaping from Natitifatu Iapiti. But like that journey some three or four years prior, they made it safe and sound, meeting up with the Bardister. Funnily enough, Burns had to board the ship himself, rather than have a longboat get him from the beach, because the agent had apparently made a promise to the local iwi that he didn't follow through with, and as such feared they would exact utu, recompensation. Burns managed to smooth this over, which makes sense, as the iwi tribe in question was probably Te Aitanga Amahaki, who he had spent some time with all those years ago. Having all that done, he was finally able to get himself and his flax safely aboard. For whatever reason, Burns decided not to take his wife or children with him, so he said his goodbyes, of which he said, quote, I cannot describe how the natives felt, but however, I will say for myself that no man ever left a place more regretted than I did when leaving New Zealand, end quote. As the Bardister sailed off, Barnett Burns left behind the land he grew to love, along with the people he grew to love. His chiefs, his iwi, his friends, and most importantly, his wife and children, who he always had by his side. He left them on the beach in Poverty Bay, Aotearoa, New Zealand, as he was bound for Sydney. He would never see them again. The ship stopped at a few places along its route to Australia, with Burns being an invaluable asset due to his knowledge of te reo, the Māori language, as well as tikanga customs, and the fact that he was tattooed. This resulted in them getting some good trade deals and avoiding a fight. Eventually, Burns reached Sydney, and although he doesn't say about the result of the matter he wished to discuss with his employer, he does say that he was convinced by the Bardister's captain to travel to England in February of 1835 for potentially a similar purpose. Burns was probably pretty keen to get out of Sydney as soon as possible, as his moko tattoos were met with curiosity as well as suspicion, mostly from the local convict population, who thought he was one of them and had undergone the operation to not be recognised. It's about here that Burns' book ends, as it was around this time he was writing it. As such, we lose a lot of detail and visibility on the following period of his life. We don't know what became of his dealings in England either, other than once he was there, he became a lecturer and a showman, going by the name he may have been called during his time in New Zealand, Pahirangi. 
He used his moko tattoos and his typical Māori dress, including kākahu cloak, to emphasise his stories and give authenticity. He also apparently showed the preserved head of another chief he had slain, another very common practice for Māori at the time. Not that he really needed to add anything extra, he had actually been to New Zealand and lived those adventures, but of course, the Victorian crowds liked a good bit of native extravagance with their shows. Honestly, I'd argue whether these were actually lectures, in the sense that he stood up in front of a crowd and talked. They sound like they may have been closer to a circus act to draw in punters, rather than being about learning another culture. This may have in fact been the case, as there were some that hated his lectures, one person saying it was, quote, an incongruous jumble of impudence, of ignorance, of low wit, and bare-faced presumption, end quote. Although in saying that, there were some that really enjoyed them, saying he made intelligent remarks on New Zealand, as well as Māori beliefs and customs. It also looks like the lectures got worse in attendance as they went, the first one likely being packed, and the last one only having a handful of filled seats. A potential reason for this is that when Burns returned to England, he succumbed to alcoholism, something common among returned Pākehā Māori. During his lectures, he had a woman do a sort of musical intermission partway through, who was advertised on posters as, quote, Mrs. Burns, end quote. Now, it does seem that Burns remarried upon his return to England, though the sources differ on who this was. Some say it was a Rosina Crowther, but the source I had sent to me from the National Library here in New Zealand says he married a Bridget Kane in June of 1835. Either way, it does seem he was married fairly quickly after his return. Burns continued on this path for quite some time, living perhaps in Plymouth or in a town called Linton outside of Cambridge. We can track his lectures as before each one there was a reprint of his book, the first appearing in 1835, the same year he came back to England. The ninth and last reprint was in 1859, nearly 25 years after his return to Europe. In his last lecture, Burns collapsed from some unknown illness, but thankfully he recovered. It wasn't to last though. Barnett Burns died in 1860 from, quote, morbus cordis cirrhosis of liver acetes, end quote, which I do not know if I'm pronouncing correctly, but it's basically liver failure. So clearly, the alcohol caught up with him. He would have been between age 50 to 53. This entire time when he comes back to England raises a lot of questions. Why did he stay for a quarter of a decade? Why did he get remarried? Did he ever return to New Zealand? We can't really definitively answer any of these questions, but we do know he potentially intended to go back to Aotearoa. In March of 1836, Thomas Morgan, a relative of Burns, was corresponding with some lords at the colonial office in regards to Burns wanting to give them, quote, valuable information, end quote, about New Zealand. Burns had an idea of establishing a small colony of artisans and tradesmen under his protection, and he offered to supply the British government and merchants with timber and flax. This makes a lot of sense, as this was something that Burns, as a rangatira chief, was likely within his power and influence to do. What became of this plan? We don't know. 
though Burns did apply later to go to New Zealand on another ship. Again though, we aren't sure what happened there. There are a lot of what-ifs in our knowledge of Barnett Burns, many stemming from the fact our main source on his time here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, is his own account. This naturally has many problems, such as the fact that it was written for a British audience, so the more grisly aspects and those that the average reader at the time might find quaint or savage may have been played up. As we mentioned earlier too, he seems to repeat the number of people as being the same in various circumstances, which could either be down to bad memory or just try to make it up as he went along. His words throughout the book also seem counter to his actions upon coming back to England. He professes this great love for Aotearoa and its people, and yet, as soon as he is in England again, he remarries and stays there for the rest of his life, which ends up being a much longer time than what he stayed in New Zealand. There really is just not enough information to tell how he really felt, but having read his book, I do feel that there was a genuine love for Aotearoa and its people in him. Which really makes his story quite sad. Though, that may just be the drama lover in me. After Burns left, his wife Amotawa had one more child, Hori Waiti, who was adopted by her relatives in Tokumaru Bay. He was the only surviving child of Burns, and had adventures of his own, perhaps even travelling to England himself. He also had children, and they had children, and today, there are a whole bunch of people on the east coast of the North Island that trace their whakapapa, ancestry, back to the sailor, trader, rangatera, pakiha Māori, Barnett Burns. I hope you have enjoyed this look into the story of a very unknown figure in both New Zealand and British history. I had immense fun writing about him and researching him. If I have piqued your interest, and you'd like to know more about various topics, words, aspects, or anything else you may have heard during the course of this tale, we cover a lot of it in the History of Aotearoa New Zealand podcast. So far, we are still only in the pre-European period, talking about Māori culture, things like social structure, women's lives, carving, weaving, the marae meeting house, and all sorts of other stuff. We also have some more special episodes, such as a look at Bob Semple, the union leader and creator of the tank of the same name, along with a look at the New Zealand flax industry as a whole, and some episodes on animal species that can only be found here. In the new year, we will be doing a series of episodes on tāmoko, tattooing, before moving on to musical instruments, food, medicine, weapons, warfare, and then forward to the arrival of Europeans with all the culture clash madness that that will entail. Once again, I would like to thank Sam of Pax Britannica for letting me tell this fantastic story. If you want to send me feedback, ask a question, suggest a topic, or just have a chinwag, you can reach me through email at historyaltaroa at gmail.com, or Twitter at historyaltaroa, or Facebook at History Aotearoa New Zealand Podcast. Aotearoa spelt A-O-T-E-A-R-O-A. This podcast is a one-man band. If you enjoyed listening to me talk history, it'd be awesome if you could give us a rate on iTunes or your preferred podcast platform. It means a lot and helps us grow. 
spreading the story of Aotearoa New Zealand. Haritu atu, hoki tu mai. Go well and return in good health. <laughs>